Welcome to the third episode of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Jijuboy. Chapter 3 Surgeries and Starvation The Black Knight envelopes the car as it hisses along the road toward Judy and Cliff's family doctor, but he's away. Instead, his partner examines Judy, quickly covers her back up, and tells them that she needs to go to Scarborough General Hospital now. She has to see the gynecologist on call. Luckily, the hospital is just across the road. Within minutes, Cliff has helped Judy into an examining room and up onto the bed, and the gynecologist is examining her. After the gynecologist straightens up, he says that, in his considered opinion, Judy has a torsion of an ovarian cyst, which needs to be operated upon directly. Go home, he tells Cliff. I'll call you when we're done. As Cliff drives home, the specialist admits Judy for a laparotomy. In the operating room, with the GP assisting him, he cuts Judy open but to his surprise, finds nothing wrong in the pelvis. It's late, and the organs above the pelvis are outside his area of expertise. He could close up and leave it for the general surgeon to explore in a day or two. But this young mother needs help now. Plus, he doesn't want to put her through the stress of an incomplete operation, followed by another operation in a day or two. He's also puzzled by what is causing her excruciating pain and is concerned that she might not survive it for another day. He explores upward. He removes her healthy appendix, which is standard operating procedure in 1970, and then examines her ilium, a lower part of the bowel, and finds the problem. Ten centimeters from the cecum, about a half inch of the bowel has died due to a lack of blood supply. He excises the pale tissue and inspects the rest of the bowel to ensure that there is adequate blood supply. It's pink. He's relieved. He stitches the two ends of the bowel back together, closes the incision, sends her to recovery, and calls Cliff with the good news at one o'clock in the morning. Cliff is elated. Someone has finally rid Judy of her terrible pain. She will return to him. Things will go back to normal. His broad smile beams his relief to Fran, who had taken over from Francis and is keeping him company. He and Fran chatter about what has happened and reassure themselves that Judy won't miss such a small piece of bowel. After all, the bowel is extremely long. The only thing that now worries Cliff is what to tell the children in the morning before they leave for school. Fran suggests saying that the surgeon removed her appendix. That should be light enough not to frighten them. He agrees. And he knows Judy would agree too. The days slip by as Judy seems to heal. A Penrose drain attached to a noisy pump speeds up the process by suctioning fluid and infection from her abdomen. But she starts to feel the old pain again, on top of the post-surgical pain. Worse, large amounts of cells and pus start flowing out of her drain. The surgeons discuss this worrying turn. Perhaps the sutures tying the two ends of her bowel together have come apart, causing the bowel contents to leak out into her abdominal cavity and on out through the drain. A new surgeon examines Judy on September 28th, one who knows more about operating on the intestines than the first guy. She is moaning and semi-conscious from the pain. Dr. Michael O'Dwyer decides to x-ray her the next day and operate again. 
He has the staff inform Cliff. The x-ray reveals a scary story. Her intestines are paralyzed and are not working. Judy is wheeled back into the operating room on September 30th. O'Dwyer slices her skin, revealing a nice pink peritoneum. So far, things look normal. He slices through the covering over the intestines, and shock halts his hand. Fecal-stained and bloody fluid has flooded her insides from her diaphragm to her pelvis. He gingerly touches a small bowel, now gray-white in color instead of its usual red. It falls apart. Frowning, he looks at the gallbladder. Its wall is necrotic and bile has stained it and has spilled onto the stomach, the duodenum, and the liver. He notices a number of yellow-gray patches on the liver surface. Later, as the surgery continues, he notices that they are increasing. Wondering how and where the blood flow has stopped, he first feels the pulse of the superior mesenteric artery, the main source of blood supply for the bowels. Nothing. Then he feels the celiac artery. Nothing. The hepatic artery, nothing. The splenic artery, again, no pulse. Hesitantly, he checks the aorta. It is pulsing away. Relief. Next, he examines the colon, the large part of the bowel, and tries to mobilize it. But here, too, gangrene has set in. He absorbs this information. From the fourth portion of her duodenum, all the way down to the cecum, her bowels are dead. And her omentum, the fat that sits underneath the stomach, is grayish-green and lifeless. The contents spilling out of her bowels and the dead tissue have created a rampant infection inside her abdomen. She's finished. Still, something moves him to believe that life is possible, and not to sew her back up with autopsy stitches and send her back to her room to die. With his scalpel, he swiftly excises 32 feet of dead bowel from the third portion of the duodenum to just above the rectum, as well as the gallbladder. He ties off the cystic artery just in case blood flow returns and it starts to bleed. He hunts for the clot that has created this mess and finds it in the superior mesenteric vein. With blood unable to flow out of the digestive system through this vein, it had backed up into the arteries. Eventually, circulation had stopped altogether. That's how the gangrene had set in. He puts in a one-inch Penrose drain, attempts to stitch the two far-apart stumps of bowel together, stitches her wound up, and sends her to recovery. Now for the hard part. We found a previously healthy bowel, gray and friable, he explains to Cliff later in Judy's room so that both can hear the news in person instead of over the impersonal phone. Judy seems comatose. We had to excise her intestines from the duodenum down to her descending colon. Unfortunately, Mr. Taylor... Your wife cannot live without bowels. We will, of course, keep her comfortable. Cliff reels. Judy cannot die. This crisis is all supposed to be over. She moans. The pain is flowing over her stomach and she's thirsty. She begs the surgeon not to let her die. I can't die. I can't leave yet. You have to do something, anything to save me. The surgeon shakes his head sorrowfully and leaves. All they can do is infuse her with IV glucose and morphine to keep her comfortable until she dies of starvation. He goes to the coffee room hoping for some solace and relates a sad story to his colleagues. 
One volunteer said he's heard of a young gastroenterologist downtown doing some sort of work on a new feeding technology. Maybe he can help. Anything is worth a try, he thinks. His patient badly wants to live, and her husband already looks lost. He calls the gastroenterologist. Well, the young man asserts, they're not quite ready to try long-term alimentation in the hospital again. Never mind in a way that will allow the patient to go home. But he's willing to try, since she wants to live. Sure, send her over. With guarded hope, O'Dwyer tells the tailors of this possible lifeline. She might have a chance with this doctor, he tells Cliff. Judy hears and decides. She has to go. You have been listening to Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Gigiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.